Hey everyone, I'm Ben Norton, and you are watching or listening to the Multipolarista podcast. Today, we're going to talk about China and the Chinese economic model. There are a lot of people on the left who are very critical of the Chinese economic model. They have portrayed it as neoliberal, as capitalist. There's many different terms that have been used. And today to discuss this, I'm joined by one of the most eminently qualified economists who has spent years studying the Chinese economy and has actually written a, a great book about it. I'm speaking with John Ross. He's joining me from London. John Ross is an economist and he is a senior fellow at the Chang Yang Institute for Financial Studies at Renmin University of China. He has a history of working with Chinese universities. He knows the Chinese economic model very well. He knows the thinking of many parts of the Communist Party of China very well. And uh, John Ross was also previously director of economic policy for the mayor of London when Ken Livingston was mayor in London. And I'm going to get up really quickly. John recently published a book which is looking at the lessons that the left can take from China's economic model. It's called China's Great Road, Lessons for Marxist Theory and Socialist Practices. So, John, I want to begin there. You published this book and you, you say that China offers a great road. China offers many opportunities to learn about how to develop socialism in the 21st century. This is a view that contradicts some views spread by other left-wing economists and philosophers and sociologists and such. I'm thinking especially of, of certain scholars like, for instance, David Harvey, who wrote this famous book, The Brief History of Neoliberalism, in which he actually claimed that after the rise to power of Deng Xiaoping in China, that China took a neoliberal path. And he even put China at the same level as Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. So you have argued the opposite. You have done a lot of time researching the Chinese economic model, working with Chinese universities. Can you just kind of summarize the main points of your book and why you think China is, in fact, a positive model of socialist development for the world? Let's not even start off myself and David Harvey, although I'll get back to that. Let's start off with the facts about China. China's raised by World Bank criteria since 1978, 850 million people out of poverty, as defined by the World Bank. This is the greatest contribution to human rights in the entire world. There has never been such an alleviation of poverty in the whole of world history. Uh, it's more than 70% of all those people taken out of world, out of poverty on the world scale. China's for more than 40 years had an um, average growth rate of more than 9%. This is the fastest of any major economy in the entire history of the world. Um, it's got a situation whereby it, the, it has the fastest increase in, in consumption, that is living standards of any country in the world. So you've got to be serious about facts. These are not small things. These are gigantic, epoch-making facts. There's only two conclusions can be drawn. If you were to say, like David Harvey, that this example of neoliberalism, Reagan and Thatcher, then you'd have to say that Reagan and Thatcher and neoliberalism are uh, greatly maligned. If a policy can produce such a gigantic improvement in the conditions of human beings, then it's ridiculous to be going on about it being negative, etc. Of course, it's a load of rubbish. The Chinese model has nothing to do, whatever, 
uh, with neoliberalism, and that's why it's produced totally different response results. You can see it most clearly by looking at the state sector uh, within the Chinese economy. The state sector within the Chinese economy accounts for around 40% of the investment in China. And that is, as it's concentrated in all the large uh, companies, the largest companies in China are state-owned companies by far, this means that the economy can be controlled by lifting the level of investment by the state up and down. And that's the way the economy is run. China does differ from the Soviet Union in one way. The, the Soviet Union had what I would call an administered economy. Every single detail down to the prices were controlled. It was illegal to sell a um, pencil at a different price in Moscow and in Vladivostok, which is thousands of um, kilometers away. China doesn't do that. What, the way China runs its economy is that it moves the level of state investment up and down. So, for example, following the 2007 financial, 2007, 2008 financial crisis, China raised investment, primarily state investment, by almost a trillion dollars in the next six years. Whereas in US, the private investment fell by $500 billion. There's no system in the United States or neoliberalism which controls the economy by regulating, moving up and down the level of state investment. So this whole claim that this is anything to do with neoliberalism is firstly factual nonsense. And secondly, um, it doesn't, uh, it has actually profoundly reactionary conclusions, because if you would think it was neoliberalism, then as I say, neoliberalism is greatly maligned. If neoliberalism can produce such a gigantic improvement in the in the conditions of human life, then it's a progressive system, not a reactionary one. Yeah, and this this levies the this brings up the criticism that has been levied against this accusation that China is neoliberal. Well, if China's economic model is neoliberal and it has been able to lift 850 million people out of poverty, then why hasn't India, which has a thoroughly neoliberal economy, been able to also lift hundreds of millions of people out of poverty? And all you have to do is look at you know, India got independence from British colonialism in 1947. China had the triumph of its socialist revolution in 1949. So they were at similar stages of historical development in the 1940s, going through a period of colonialism. And China comes out of that having a socialist revolution. And since 1949, China has become one of the largest, if not the largest economy in the world and has lifted 800 million people out of poverty, whereas India still has massive rates of poverty. So I, I think that's a very convincing argument, John. But what do you say to people who argue that with the reforms and the, the creation of market socialism under Deng Xiaoping, starting in 1978, that yes, China might not have a neoliberal economy, but it does have what they would call a state capitalist economy. I know, I know that this is, of course, we, we get into just an argument about definitions, but what do you say to that criticism that it's just state capitalism? No, because it's not because it's run by it's run by the Communist Party, which controls the economy through the state sector of the economy. There, there are there have been state capitalist um, economies, right, in which the capitalist sector is still remains dominant, even when you have a large sector which is run by the state. But China's not the dominant sector. The Chinese. Uh, constitution or the Chinese economic policy by, by the Communist Party states clearly that the state sector is the dominant sector of the economy. And that is the case. Also, where you've had state capitalism, you've had nothing like this improvement in the conditions of people. Again, it would be bizarre. It's not state capitalism for the reasons that I've given, because it's really 
based, it came out of a revolution. There's a continuity of the state from the state that was established in 1949. If somebody wants to say that China is capitalist, they please explain to me when, uh, when capitalism is restored in China. I can tell you exactly when capitalism was restored in the Soviet Union. It was in August 1991. So they've got a strange uh, deviation of the theory whereby apparently you can have a uh, transition from a uh, socialist country of China to a capitalist country, apparently without the state being overthrown, which is a very interesting concept, which has absolutely nothing to do with Marxism. So therefore, the whole theory that is capitalism is nonsense. But again, it's reactionary. If it were the case that it was state capitalist, then you'd have to say that state capitalism is a, a, a progressive system. As you said about India, it's the same as, it's not really India. Why has other capitalist countries not produced this type of growth? Incidentally, the other country in the world which has got the high, the highest elimination of levels of poverty, poverty relative to its population, is Vietnam. It's a much smaller country, so the absolute numbers are much smaller. But that's the other country which has succeeded in uh, eliminating uh, poverty or gigantic improvements in the question of poverty. And that has basically the same economic system as China. So it's not even that China's has a specifically Chinese system. It's a model which can be used, not mechanically copied, that can be used very successfully by other countries, as Vietnam shows. Yeah, that's that's a very important point. And I would definitely in the future like to explore Vietnam's economic model. But you, you mentioned something important, John, and that's that a significant percentage of China's overall economy, somewhere around the estimates vary 30, 40 percent of GDP comes from state owned companies. And what's interesting is that Within Marxism, especially within Marxism-Leninism, there used to be more discussion of the idea of the commanding heights of the economy need to be run by the state. One of the arguments made is that one of the differences between socialism and capitalism is that in a socialist economy, the commanding heights would be run by the state, but not every single part of, not every single industry needs to be run by the state. You mentioned the case of, you know, uh, fixing the price of pencils or something. In the case of China, the telecommunications are run by the state. The land is owned by the state, the transportation sector. Can you talk more about the state sector and its role in the overall economy? And, and do you think that it's accurate to say that, that, that according to a Marxist analysis, that the commanding heights of Chinese, China's economy are own, run and owned by the state? Yes, I would say I've written many, many articles on that and in my book. So I'd like to recommend people to read it. China's economic model is much more in line with Marx than was, for example, the Soviet economy. In the Soviet economy, you had the state ownership of almost everything, uh, right down you know, to local shops, uh, the local restaurant. Uh, there was the collectivization of agriculture, etc. Okay. This system was created to deal with a, a great threat to the Soviet Union, which existed in the 1930s from fascism. It was basically used to create heavy industry to allow the Soviet Union uh, to fight a war, and, and this produced victory of the Soviet Union during uh, the Second World War. And from a military point of view, this was correct, but it was wasn't what Marx's uh, concept of the economy was. Let's let's go back and look, well, look at what Marx said, not what other people said. In the Communist Manifesto, Marx said that the uh, the working class, having taken power, would use its political power to wrest capital by degrees, as he puts it from uh, from private ownership. Well, by degrees clearly means he envisages a, a period 
during which there will not be total state ownership. There will be a parts of the economy which are state owned and private sector uh, or non-state sector of the economy. And this is very logical because and flows from Marxist theory. I mean, where does the word socialism come from? It comes from socialized. Therefore, of course, the economy develops in a very uneven way. You have very, very large, that is highly socialized companies, uh, which are the most powerful, the most developed, and that we may say the commanding heights of the economy. And then you go down to, you know, single family farms, single family shops, etc., which are not highly socialized. Marx's concept from socialism is therefore clearly that the highly socialized sectors of the economy would be taken into state ownership. And the other sectors, which would gradually develop uh, after a long period of time, more and more things would become socialized, but not overnight, would not be socialized. Or if you take, for example, uh, Marx's, uh, one of his last works, because he didn't change his mind uh, on this matter, the critique of the Gotha program, which is one of the last things he wrote, he explained that in, a, in the first stage of socialist society, he puts it, as it emerges from capitalism, payment will be according to work. Of course, he said this is not the final goal. The final goal, as Marx defined, it, is from each according to their abilities to each according to their needs. But he says this is objectively impossible in the first period of socialism. So we're going to have to go through a phase in which people will be paid by their work, which is an expression of the law of value, incidentally, because if you're paid according to work, then you're paid according, according to value. And that's the first stage of socialism. So Marx never had a concept that were, you, everything would be taken to state ownership. In, in the Soviet Union in 1929, more or less, from 1929 to 1933, everything was taken to state ownership. This is was justified by military considerations. I have many Russian friends, and my Russian friends think that this was correct. It was necessary because anything was justified and necessary in order to defeat the Nazis. But it wasn't a rational economic system, and it was a mistake to continue this economic system after World War II when you were in a different economic uh, situation. It, it meant that the totally statified economy actually did not grow much faster than the um, the capitalist economy, particularly from 19, about 1970 onwards. And by the late 1970s, it was actually growing more slowly than the United States. Whereas in China, exactly took what you would call the commanding heights, or if you want to use Marx's term, the most socialized sectors of the economy are taken into the state. This means in particular, China, the Chinese state owns the largest companies. Uh, it particularly dominates the banks, all the large banks in China are state-owned. The land is state-owned. The energy system is state-owned. The largest manufacturing companies are state-owned. But it doesn't want to take over uh, and shouldn't take over, incidentally. You know, every little local corner shop, every single restaurant, etc. There, that, that can be got on perfectly well by individual people. In fact, it will develop more efficiently. So actually, and, and I explain this at some considerable length, and with people who want quotations and references to Marx, they'll find it all, all in the book. China's system is more in line from, from an economic point of view with the conception of Marx than was the Soviet Union. Yeah, and I want to ask you, John, about your time in the 1990s. You, you saw the horrific structural adjustment and program imposed on the former Soviet Union, the neoliberal shock therapy. We'll come to back to that in a second, because I think it's important to talk about what the West has done to 
what it did to the Soviet Union, what it has since done to Russia economically. And we can talk, of course, about the sanctions on Russia. But before that, you mentioned something important, and that's land ownership in China. The, the land in China is owned by the state. And maybe you can talk a little bit more through that because it's actually somewhat confusing. I do know that land in China is owned by the state, but basically what it does is it kind of allows people to basically rent it for like 50 to 70 to 80 years at a time. So can you talk about the the uh, the how land is managed under China's model of socialism and and what how it compares to, for instance, the the Soviet uh, system for land ownership? Well, the, the difference is the following. In, if you take the Soviet system, you, what you had was collective farms. That it was the, there was not individual farming. Instead, you had collective units and individual people didn't have, uh, didn't have, not merely didn't have ownership of the land, they didn't have use of the land. In China, you have what is called the household responsibility system. That means that in general, the farmers are family-run farms. There are, of course, some cooperatives and there are combinations of people, but the fundamental unit in, in the Chinese farming is the household. And that this was the big change after 1978, the introduction of the household responsibility system. What, it, what in essence you have is you could conceive it to a very, very long-term lease, in practice, virtually indefinite lease, because you don't want to have short-term leases it's not formally, legally a lease. It's a responsibility system, but nevertheless, you can, the nearest comparison. You don't want short-term land ownership because that means that there's no incentive to the farmers and peasants to make improvements. Why, if their land was going to be, the use of the land was going to be taken away from them after five years, why, why should they engage in a great deal of investment? Um, many ag things necessary for agriculture, for example, uh, irrigation and so on, and construction of buildings need a long term. So you need, they need to have the right to use the land for a long period of time, and that's guaranteed, provided that the land is used. But what they can't do is they can't legally own the, the land, and that's, um, that's the big difference. So there's no, you, you're not having a system whereby private landlords are taking in rent and so on. That itself, of course, is an enormous advantage. Um, in China for the farm. So de facto, the the, the individual households run the farms. Uh, they don't own the land, but they have a guarantee that they will be able to use the land for a long period of time. That That's the system. Yeah, it's very interesting. And, and I know it kind of also depends on if it's in a rural area or in a city and it's a complex system. But um, you, you also talked about the differences between the Soviet model and the Chinese model. And What's what? What uh, people might not know is that you spent several years in post-Soviet Russia in the 1990s. You saw the neoliberal shock therapy that was imposed on the former Soviet Union, and we now know there have been studies published by major international organizations that show that the life expectancy of the average Russian decreased by several years that there were millions of excess deaths, according to UNICEF, which published a report 10 years after the capitalist reforms were imposed on Russia. And also there were millions of people pushed into poverty, uh, child malnutrition increased. I mean, so many social ills. You were there on the ground. Can you talk about what you saw firsthand and how that informs your, your view today of not just Ch China, but also Russia? Yeah, very, very certainly. I mean, just to give a tiny little background, 
Um, I, I went to Russia and I wrote an article which became well known in Russia. It was originally published in Russian, not in English, called Why the Economic Reform Will Succeed in China and Fail in Russia and Eastern Europe. The reason I wrote the article was I actually started to study the Soviet economy way back in the early 1970s. And I began to look at the uh, Chinese economy, particularly after 1978. Uh, the basis for this was some theoretical questions, but the basic conclusion was that the Chinese economy should be extremely successful for the reasons I've outlined, because it was in line with Marx. And I thought that the policies which were introduced by, and so by about 1981, it was clear this was a big success. Uh, I also thought the policies introduced by Gorbachev went exactly contrary to what was required. It didn't introduce um, individual farming. It didn't open the economy to international trade, but it began, began to prepare the privatization of large-scale industry, whereas China preserved the ownership of large-scale industry. So therefore, I thought that the Gorbachev uh, would result in a disaster, uh, which I'm unfortunately, of course, unfolded. Um, right. So therefore, because I've been studying this for a long time, that was why as I went to Russia as, as soon as possible in, in 1992 and wrote, wrote the article. The, the line of the article is um, totally self-explanatory from the title. Unfortunately, exactly the disaster that was predicted, not merely by Gorbachev's policies, by shock therapy, unfolded. I mean, this was the most horrible experience of my entire life. You can explain it in terms of statistics. The, the, the Russian economy contracted by 40% between uh, 1991 and uh, 1998. This is the largest peacetime fall in output in any major economy uh, since at least the Industrial Revolution, probably longer, but certainly since, certainly since then. In other words, it was an economic catastrophe. It gave me no pleasure to see it, but it confirmed these predictions. As you mentioned, life expectancy fell. Male life expectancy fell by around uh, five years. Millions of people uh, were excess deaths. But, but I can also explain it in a personal sense. It was horrible, horrible to see. People were so poor, you had pensioners who would be standing on the streets in the Russian winter, and which is, you know, really cold, not even trying to sell a pack of cigarettes, trying to sell a single cigarette. You saw pensioners who were who who made pies at home and they would stand for hours on the street trying to sell the pie that they'd made for themselves. Uh, and this wasn't this wasn't small numbers of people. This was thousands and tens of thousands of people. It was particularly horrific because this, of course, was the generation that fought World War Two. They defeated fascism. They defeated Nazism. It should have been the highest duty of the state to make sure that in their retirement they could live uh, properly. And instead, they were thrown into these horrific conditions. Or again, if I can give a personal anecdote. Um, I was um, hiring a, a room where I was doing my work. I, I was working with some uh, Russian uh, colleagues. And um, every time we came into the building, I noticed something which I thought was rather strange which was that in the entrance, what you might call the caretaker's room, at the beginning, there seemed to be, there was a whole family living. There was, a, the, I assumed a husband, there was a man and a woman, there were two children, and they seemed to be living in this, because there were beds and everything, you know, in, in this room. Uh, so I thought this was very strange and felt sorry for them. And 
well, not sorry, but I you know, didn't like such things. So, you know, I, I arranged, they, they could do various things in Russia. I didn't know how to get around, how to buy certain things, etc. So I gave them some, some, you know, some small amounts of money in payment for what they did. And it was terrible. The guy came to see me almost in tears after I've been doing this uh, for a few weeks and said, look, I want to thank you so much. We originally came from um, from Nagorno-Karabakh in where there was a war between Armenia and Azerbaijan, which was another aspect of the disintegration of the Soviet Union. Wars broke out. I mean, the, 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 of course, there's a tremendous war now going on in Ukraine, which is perfectly possible to predict uh, 30 years ago. Uh, there was a war in Chechnya. There was war in between Armenia and Azerbaijan. He said we had to flee, um, flee this war, and that and we're living here because you know we had to find a way to get into Russia and how to look after ourselves. And he was almost in tears. Thank you so much. I mean, I felt pathetic. I couldn't, you know, couldn't do very much, right? And, and th those were the type of things. This was this was horrific. This was the literal immiseration of tens of millions of people. This was the deaths of millions of people. Uh, and this is the human conditions which I saw. Not to mention then, of course, all this process was then reinforced by Yeltsin sending his tanks to attack the Russian parliament. I was in Moscow at the time. You could see the shelling which was going on at the parliament building. And all this was supported by the West. This wasn't a step forward. This was a horrific uh, step backwards in the most human terms, let alone statistics or uh, Marxist theory. In fact, it's, I would say it's the greatest contrast in my life to see these terrible things which were happening in Russia when the West was praising what was going on, compared to the fact where I, well, I had the opportunity to see the exact opposite in China, which is every year the Chinese people go forward, their living standards improve. I see the people around me, their lives getting better all the time. It's like uh, night and day. So I saw, if you like, the horrific consequences, if you like seeing hell, which was the results of the shock therapy. And I've also seen what uh, the Chinese people ha have improved their lives. That's why I am extremely clear about what is the difference between capitalism and uh, socialism in very human terms. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a very important point to make that you, you, if you, if you claim that China is socialist, uh, excuse me, if you claim that China is capitalist, and look at all of the gains that it has made, I mean, what does that say about what you actually think about capitalism? It, it is definitely a, a pretty absurd, facile argument. Um, now, I do want to respond to some criticisms of of those of us who who correctly, or I think correctly, recognize that China has a socialist economic model. There are those who have criticized that model. And it, it, there, there are valid criticisms of inequality, saying that, well, they argue that, you know, China can't be socialist because it has billionaires. And, of course, China is not a, is not a classless society. It is on a path toward uh, socialism and eventually communism. It's a complicated historical process of, you know, development. So what do you say to those who argue, well, China can't be socialist because it has billionaires? And... Also, the, the reality that there is definitely inequality. Now, we have seen the Communist Party of China. The government has moved. They, they have assessed that they've developed the productive forces enough that they've moved toward, after eliminating extreme poverty, moved toward uh, fighting inequality. We see now that the, the government is talking about the idea of common prosperity. 
and fighting some of that inequality. But what is your response to those who say that China can't be socialist because there are billionaires? Please show me the text of Marx in which he says the definition of socialism is that there are no billionaires. I mean, I don't like billionaires very much, frankly. I don't know very many. I've met one or two, but, you know, they're not my they're not greatly um, my favorite people. Right? I have. But it's ridiculous. The aim of Mar Marx was to improve the conditions of people of the great majority of people, not to suppress um, other people. Was there excessive inequality in uh, China? Yes, probably. Um, I note from this the fact that the China or the the China is attempted to deal with this by the question of common prosperity, as, as you outlined. This is a complicated matter. Once you agree, once you under, understand that not the whole of the economy is going to be uh, state owned then the problem of inequality arises again let's go back to deal with the soviet union in the soviet union essentially everything was state owned uh the claim that the bureaucracy in the soviet union was in any way comparable to the capitalist class in the west is nonsense uh they had nothing like the privileges the power the living standards or whatever of billionaires um in the west and and the the problem of inequality was not extremely great in the soviet union of course there was some but as in every country inequality in income is very very much less than inequality in wealth so if you have basically entire state ownership then you don't have a problem of inequality the problem is because this system of 100 of the state ownership proved itself to be economically inefficient and that was you have to understand that reality by from the mid 1960s and the early 1970s the soviet union did not grow more rapidly than capitalism and from the mid 1970s onwards it grew more slowly than the united states the problem that the, the left needs to face up to that's why it needs to adopt the chinese model and not the soviet one is whatever was the reasons for the um basically military decision to create a totally state-owned economy in 1929, basically, which enabled the Soviet Union to win World War II, uh, which was in a, in economic terms, an ultra-left deviation from Marx. It, it statized everything. This was an immense economic failure after World War II, and particularly from the 1960s onwards. Some people just want to say things which are untrue, but the left can't base itself on myths. I've heard people say that the Soviet Union had the amongst the fastest growth after World War II, had amongst the fastest growth rates in the world. It did in the 1930s. It did have amongst the, in fact, the fastest growth rate in the world. But by after World War II, this is simply not true. And the left can't base itself um, on myths and, and false claims. The Soviet Union collapsed in large part because its economy didn't work. Uh, and therefore, it was overtaken economically. Uh, but or maintained the lead by the United States. China's economy, on the contrary, was vastly successful. It's grown more fast than any other major economy in the history of the world. It's a gigantic success. And I would put it very precisely that Deng Xiaoping and Chen Yun, who's not very well known in the West, but was the actual, what you might call, nuts and bolts organizer of the Chinese economic reform. Deng Xiaoping gave the general ideological and theoretical lead, but Chen Yun was the person who actually put the whole thing together in a practical sense. These people saved world socialism. If you had had this type of economic failure that you had in the Soviet Union in China after 1978, China by now would have had the reactionary consequences. 
and what this would mean, not merely a disaster for world socialism, it would mean the disaster of the 850 million people who were not, who would not have been taken out of poverty by Chinese, de uh, Chinese development. It would have mean that the Chinese people did not have the fastest growth um, of living standards in the world. And you've got to look at these big facts. Marx's theory of, of uh, understand socialism because he says this will improve the conditions of humanity. That's what China's done. No country in the whole of world history has ever achieved, uh, improved the conditions of people as much as China has. Again, let, let's just take a little economic impact to understand the enormous scale of these events. The first country in the world that ever ever had rapid economic growth, which is the precondition for improving people's living standards, was Britain at the time, or England to be more precise at the time of the Industrial Revolution. It was about 2% of the world's population. The next country to undertake very rapid economic growth was the US following the Civil War. That's about 3.5% of the world's population. The Soviet Union after 1929, which had very rapid economic growth and improvement in living standards, I don't want to attack, there was big improvement in living standards at that time, was about 8.2% of the world's population. You can understand why the Soviet experience had such a gigantic effect. It was almost three times as big as any other country which had ever experienced rapid economic growth in history. China was, when it started economic growth, was 22% of the world's population. That's three times as big as any other country which had ever experienced rapid economic growth and the improvement of living standards. This is just a gigantic fact. And that is the aim of Marxism. The aim of Marxism, as he, you can put it technically, it's to improve the development of the productive forces, but the human effect is to improve the living conditions of people. That's what Marx, Marxism is. It's to look at extremely small things compared to what is the conditions of hundreds of millions of people. The left should be celebrating what China has achieved. If you wanted to have somebody who wanted to be objective instead of being stupid, they could say, right, fine. They could say, right, this is fantastic progress. We can do even better. Uh, you know, I can make a lot of, you know, a lot of criticisms of the situation in China. There's a lot of things going to be, need to be improved. I don't know anybody in China at all who thinks the system is perfect. But it's, it's a gigantic fact. In 1949, China was almost the poorest country in the world. I think there were, if my memory is right, from Angus Madison's studies, I think there were uh, 10 countries which had a lower per capita GDP than China. China was almost the poorest country in the world. In two years, approximately, China will become a high income economy by World Bank uh, definition. Now, again, think what that means. China's 18% of the world's population. The people who live in high income economies today are 16.5% of the world's population. This means that when China becomes a high income economy with all the benefits, I'm not looking at it from the point of statistics, the, the health service, the education system, the, the life expectancy, uh, the ability to choose what you do with your culture and time in that, the number of people live have the advantage of such economies going to more than double. You can make criticisms, but this is the biggest single step forward for humanity that has ever taken place in the whole of human history. And other countries can learn from it, as with Vietnam. And that's what the left should be saying, not getting uh, obsessed by what are tiny little pinpricks, like there are some billionaires, uh, I don't know, in, in, in China.
It's got the left's got to raise itself to understand in the enormous, gigantic scale of what China represents. Yeah, and I've, I've, the way I've seen it expressed by uh, people in China is that in these Western neoliberal capitalist economies, billionaires control the state, whereas in China, the state controls the billionaires. And the state has often and is currently taking action against some of these billionaires, as we currently see in the campaign against Jack Ma and others. So I think I think that's a, it's an important point to keep in mind. Now, John, I have a question about the idea of the Asian tigers, right? Because we, we often hear that the Asian tigers, specifically, uh, you know, South Korea, Singapore, Hong Kong, which is part of the People's Republic of China, but has a, a, a different economic model. It's, you know, what they call one country, two systems. They, these countries, or rather in the case of Hong Kong, this part of China, these, these, well, in the case of South Korea and Singapore, these countries are often portrayed as the success of neoliberalism, supposedly. The, the World Bank famously claimed that the reason that South Korea and Singapore developed so rapidly was supposedly because they had little state intervention, although that seems like a historical revisionism because in reality, there was a lot of state intervention in their economies. But what do you say in response to that argument that there, there is this argument made by by capitalists who say that, well, the reason China developed so quickly is because it adopted a similar policy like the Asian tigers. Although actually what we see now is that growth has slowed in, in some of those countries like in South Korea, while in China growth is still, you know, uh, very, very rapid. So what, what do you think of the Asian tigers and how does China's model differ or how is it similar to the model of the Asian tigers? The claim that the Asian tigers grew because of neoliberalism can only be made by somebody who's never studied uh, the Asian tigers. The, the only one of those economies which was relatively liberal was Hong Kong. And basically, Hong Kong grew incredibly fast um, because it had the advantage of being close to China, which it still has the advantage of. It basically was an offshore base for China. That's why it did. And they're tiny, right? Okay. South Korea has got nothing to do with neoliberalism, whatever. It was massive state-directed companies, uh, protected companies, uh, gigantic uh, uh, situation of supplying cheap capital. It was what you have. Um, it's what you had. Some interest rates were kept extraordinarily low for savers, so that you put your money into uh, the South Korean uh, banks uh, for almost no rate of interest if you were an individual saver, and it was then lent to. Uh, companies to in invest extraordinarily low rates of interest, allowing massive capital investment. Uh, there's excellent books on the development of the Asian tigers, and this was got nothing to do with neoliberalism, whatever. Singapore is one of the most directed uh, economies, not merely in the economy, incidentally, but, you know, in life. Anybody who's been to Singapore knows this is one of the most regimented um, societies in the world. I mean, you know, the first thing you're greeted with when you land in Singapore is a notice which says um, uh, Singapore executes drug smugglers. Um, and if you go and if you go and drop chewing gum on the um, pavement, you know, expect to be arrested. Um, and again, it had a totally directed uh, system uh, like that. And exactly the same with Taiwan. Taiwan was a first it was a dictatorship, of course. For most of its period, and it certainly didn't have a liberal economy. So anyone who's claiming that these economies is um, you know, neoliberal 
uh, I'm frankly is um, totally um, talking about nonsense. They've never, never, never uh, studied them. There are some similarities between China's economy, but not in these things. It's in the fact that all these economies had incredibly high rates of investment. China's got the highest rate of investment of any major economy in world history. Uh, they're relatively open to uh, foreign trade, uh, which is also uh, correct. Marx's concept of the socialization of labor includes the fact that the economy should be open to a foreign trade. That was another mistake of the Soviet Union to be a self-contained economy. So I'm afraid this is whole, if claim of neoliberalism is just a whole load of factual nonsense. Yeah, uh, I, I think that that comparison is is also, I mean, it's ridiculous. Um, I wanted to ask you about the different ideological uh, currents within the Communist Party of China. Of course, this is the largest Communist Party in the world. It has, I believe, 90 million members out of a country with 1.4 billion people. Obviously, if you have 90 million people, you're going to have quite a quite a bit ideological diversity, right? And there are different currents within the Communist Party. I'm wondering if you can talk about what those currents are, what the debates are inside China, and also where you would put President Xi in within those debates. Okay, well, on that, my um, uh, I don't think that, as I'm not a Chinese citizen, I've got the right, as I'm not a Chinese citizen, I don't have the right to interfere in China's internal politics. Um, that it's in my contract, incidentally, that I shouldn't, and I don't. Uh, I think that what is the conditions, what 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 I can describe is what I can see. Right. The idea that there is no discussion in China is completely ridiculous. If you look at the Chinese social media, for example, which I do all the time, I'm you know I'm much more active in Chinese social media than I am in the West. I've got a million followers on Weibo, which is the Chinese equivalent of Twitter. Uh, you have tremendous debate. China has, for example, on the question of economic policy, tremendous differences. I mean, the Communist Party has a very, it operates according to a democratic centrist model in the real way that Lenin outlined it incidentally, not as was done by other communist parties, right? Okay. It decides, for example, right, we're not very, we, we need to analyze the economic situation. Okay. We're going to open a political discussion. Not merely the whole of society, but the members of the Communist Party then participate in this discussion. And incidentally, they put forward very diverse views. Um, some people um, think that the solution is to privatize everything. Uh, some people, on the contrary, say that the state should be, uh, the state has made excessive um, concessions to private capital. You've got the most incredible range of um, economic views. Obviously, I follow that uh, most closely. Uh, you've had you have very lively discussions. For example, um, the, the Chinese economy is, um, of, of course, does it, while it's overall incredibly successful. It doesn't doesn't mean there are no problems. Doesn't mean there are never any mistakes made. And you'll have discussions. Some people will argue we need more stimulus. Uh, some people will say we need less stimulus. Uh, some people will say the type of um, stimulus we need on economic policy is investment. Some people say we need stimulus on consumer. You've got every single view. That you can possibly have. Incidentally, the discussions there are much, much more intense uh, and have a wider range of people than anything in the West. I mean, let me give you an example. I had a discussion on the extremely technical question 
uh, with a representative of a leading Western bank on the question of the role of total factor productivity in economic growth. I, I won't bother to bore people by explaining what that means, right? Okay. It had 2 million people uh, uh, forwarded, commented, etc., on this discussion. The, the level of discussion in China is incredibly higher than the ones which are exist in the West. As regards the question of, um, of President Xi Jinping, again, I'll just say things which are in the public domain. Uh, Xi Jinping is an extremely sophisticated Marxist. Um, I, I was asked to review his book, the first one of his book on the governance of China. Now, I was somewhat surprised to be asked to review it. And I was also careful that I've, I've got a rule, which is I will never say anything which I don't think is right. I sometimes don't say everything which I think, but I don't say things which I don't think. That's my way of functioning. And so I, I of course, I'd read many of his speeches individually, but I put, took up the whole book. It's nearly 600 pages long. It's, he is a very, very sophisticated Marxist. And he also has huge support. The ideas which sometimes put around in the West that the sort of authoritarian rule by Xi Jinping. I know, you know, I'm I'm quite smart enough to, to be with ordinary people. I can tell you when somebody's given me a stereotyped answer, and I can tell you when they're giving uh, their their real view. The policies which he took cracked down on, on corruption, for example, which is incredibly popular because corruption become a very serious uh, problem. Uh, the common prosperity, as it's put forward now, which is looking at the fact, uh, it put it, you have to have control of capital. That's This is the key thing. Um, as long as you don't have total state ownership, you're going to have some inequality of wealth. OK, but this should not be allowed to get out of control. Uh, I think it was got out of control excessively in some cases. And the idea of common prosperity is that everybody must benefit in this situation and the whole of society must go there forward these are incredibly popular ideas not to mention completing the target of uh eliminate the total elimination of poverty absolute poverty in china which was set and which was achieved which was an incredible effort incidentally there were about three million people were mobilized to do this you had to get into the most uh you know, isolated small villages, um, et cetera, et cetera, because, of course, most of the poverty was in in agricultural um, regions. It, this is incredible. It's a very sophisticated Marxist. This is uh, absurd things, which the West used to say. They used to say, oh, well, it's not really a communist party. It's, um, you know, they don't really. It said, it said what it says in the tin. It said we're a communist party. We're Marxist. Uh, the West thought it knew better just as it thought better the Chinese economy was going to collapse and so on, but then it never collapsed. And it's now suddenly discovered that, on the contrary, this is a very, it's what it says, it's a communist party. It's Marxist. There are the most sophisticated Marxist debates which go on in, in China. Again, I don't wish to be insulting, but the level of Marxist discussion in China is so much higher than in most of the West, that it's embarrassing. Again, let's take David Harvey. <laughs> yeah, let's take David Harvey, right? Who's regard, who presents Marx? David Harvey has got doesn't understand Marx at all. In fact, doesn't agree with Marx. If you if you read his introduction, uh, his commentary on the first 
uh, volume Marx's Capital. He says he doesn't agree with Marx on the rise in organic composition of capital. He doesn't agree with Marx on the falling rate of profit. That means he doesn't understand Marx on the question of the socialization of labor. This is not Marxism. This is some sort of, I don't know, some Keynesianism, some sort of left neoliberalism or something. I'll, I'll put it very bluntly. You know, David, David Harvey is not a Marxist. And the ideas that are, are put forward of this type of discussion in the West are embarrassing compared to the types of discussions which take place in China. It, it, it's indeed rather arrogant of the Western left. I was, I was on a TV program, at one of these review of the end of the year programs. Uh, you know, end of the year, uh, viewing the next year, you know, the type of program that occurs everywhere. And before I said it, one of the participants in the panel, with no prompting from me, said, look, the, the Westerners are so arrogant that even their leftists think that they're going to give lectures to us. Uh, this is what she said with no prompting from me. She said, and what have they achieved compared to what we've achieved? We've created socialism. We've taken 850 million people out of poverty. Uh, we've improved living standards. We've in gigantically improved uh, the position of women. We've given, uh, we've driven the people who occupied our country out. What has the Western left done in comparison to this? Absolutely nothing. And they think that they're there to give us lectures. And she got a gigantic round of applause for saying that, because she was quite right. One of the things, which is a bit about good at the moment, because I've been writing on China for 30, 30 years, right? I would say for 25 years out of that time, the West, Western left, didn't discuss China and thought it was capitalist, etc. About five years ago, they began to discover China. But the, the, the way, some of the way some of them dealt with what they thought was that they'd got to teach China. What a joke. She was exactly right. What has the Western left accomplished compared to what the people of China and the Chinese Communist Party achieved? achieved? I, I deliberately, I've got a website called Learning from China, learningfromchina.net for those who want to find it. Uh, and I deliberately put it that way because as a provocation, because that's what it really needs. It's not the job of the Western left to uh, be giving lectures to China because it's achieved nothing in comparison to what the people of China have achieved. The Western left has got to understand exactly to learn uh, from China. And that's the points that I would make in relationship to these things. For God's sake, get a, well, God is not a very good thing to invoking Marxism. <laughs> Just get a grip. Understand the gigantic con gigantic achievements of China and the Western left needs to study China. Yeah, I, I strongly agree. And from my perspective in Latin America, it's, it's so frustrating to see so much condescending criticism of Cuba and Venezuela and Nicaragua and even from Bolivia from you know, these armchair socialists in the global north who, frankly, have never been able to accomplish anything. And they think they can lecture Cuba, which survives despite 60 years of brutal economic war waged by the, the global superpower. I mean, it's uh, it's quite it's it's peak arrogance. But in the last 10, 15 minutes here, John, I, I do want to ask you about your experience as an economic advisor for uh, mayor Ken Livingstone when he was mayor of London and also the Corbyn movement 
And so we'll, I'll talk about that in a second. But while we wrap up our discussion of China here, I want to talk about the U.S. economic war, because, of course, I would be remiss if we didn't talk about the new Cold War. You are part of an, uh, a group of people. I, I also collaborate with them. Uh, no New Cold War is the name of this campaign against no or no Cold War. The idea of campaigning against the new Cold War, against the second Cold War. And we've seen that going back to the Obama administration, that the Hillary Clinton State Department declared a pivot to Asia, which, as Brian Becker often points out, really means pivot to war in Asia, war with China. And then we saw the Trump administration came in and Trump began a trade war with China, imposing sanctions, targeting China's technological companies, especially Huawei, to try to prevent Chinese technological competition. And we've, had, we've seen some of those policies continue under the Biden administration, the imposition of sanctions. And now over Russia's military operation in Ukraine, we see more threats against China over its economic agreements and its uh, energy imports from Russia. In fact, I just want to get up here. Today is May 20th and yesterday, May 19th, the New York Times published an article, which is quite incredible acknowledging that the Biden administration is considering secondary sanctions, which would punish countries that buy Russian energy. And of course, China is one of the largest purchasers of Russian oil and gas. And I highly doubt this is going to, I, I'll just, I'll go out and say further, there's no way that this threat is going to stop China and Russia from continuing to do trade with each other. So I think really what, what this is, is the U.S. announcing that they're basically declaring a kind of new iron curtain, a new kind of economic iron curtain, and basically telling countries around the world that they have to choose between doing trade with the United States or doing trade with Russia and also China. And what's funny is I think a lot of people in Washington is still, they're stuck in the 1990s. I, I, I tweeted out these these images here that show countries' largest trading partners back in the 1990s, well, in 1990s specifically. And you can see that, you know, China did have significant trading partners, Cuba, a few other countries, Hong Kong, of course, which is part of China. But um, if you look at back in 1990, there were a lot of countries that were doing much more trade with the U.S. But then if you look at this, this graphic from 2020, 30 years later, it has completely shifted. And now there are dozens of countries in the world, including Western allies, whose largest trading partner is not the United States, it's China. So clearly, I mean, I've kind of, uh, I've kind of partially answered this question. I guess you could say it's a leading question, but I, I don't think this US attempt at having an economic war in China is going to be very effective. But I'm curious just what your thoughts are on this new Cold War and specifically the economic war that the United States is trying to wage on both China and Russia and how you think it's going to go? Well, I think that the situation is that the United States, if it has a peaceful economic competition with China, is just going to lose. Uh, I think it's already clear. I mean, the trade war is a total failure. Let, let's just take the last two years, let, let alone this whole development since 1978. In the two years of the pandemic, the U.S. economy grew by 2.1%. They're taking the two years together. 
China's economy grew by 10.5%. China's economy grew five times as much, five times as rapidly as the United States. Um, yeah, and John, and I'm sorry to cut you off, but if I could jump in, I should also add that, you know, as Michael Hudson often points out, we should also distinguish different kinds of economic growth. Most of the economic growth in China is productive economic growth, whereas a lot of the so-called economic growth in the U.S. is in the fire sector, the finance insurance and real estate sector. And it's not actually the productive economy that's growing. Yeah, but what it means, is even if you take a, a, a measurement which is biased in favor of the United States, China's economy is still growing five times yeah. as fast as, as the United States. Look at the trade war. The, the It's been a total failure. The, the, the U.S. has lost the trade war. China's exports and imports are growing rapidly. It lost a little bit of market share in the um, in the United States. Um, but it, it just compensated for it, more than compensated for it in the rest of the world. But this raises a very dangerous situation. I think we're entering a very dangerous moment in the world. And perhaps I, I think there are some good things being published in the United States. I'll be men mentioning about this, right? Which is the danger in the present situation is the U U.S., is going to lose to China. It's already lost the economy and will lose. The area which it still maintains supremacy is military. Now, let's make a comparison to the um, uh, old Cold War. The, the Soviet economy was never uh, a match for the for the US economy. It, it was only at its peak, only 44% the size of the US economy. Um, and as I said, by the 19, late 1960s onwards, was not growing more rapidly than the US. Uh, China's economy in purchasing power parities, that's realistic prices, is already larger than the US economy. But the Soviet Union was militarily approximately equal to the United States. So in other words, in the in the Cold, old Cold War, the, economic, the United States was economically strong and not didn't have a decisive military advantage. Therefore, the US attempted to shift every competition onto economic competition. Even Reagan's military buildup wasn't really to fight a war with the Soviet Union. It was to put intolerable economic strain upon the Soviet Union. But in the new situation compared to China, the United States um, finds itself economically weak, but militarily strong. And what is the temptation in that? The temptation is therefore to use military means. And therefore, this is what we're really seeing. This, for example, really explains the war in Ukraine. What's the problem for China, for the United States in a war with China? Well, one of them is, of course, Russia, because the one field in which somebody is the equal of the United States in the world is Russia is the equal of the United States in nuclear weapons. Therefore, the United States, if it wanted to have a war with China, would have to co consider, as China has good relations with Russia, that it would also have to fight Russia. And Russia is the one country which has the ability to completely destroy the United States. Therefore, US policy is to try to knock China, Russia out of the way, get it out of its alliance with uh, China at best, to weaken it, etc. And that's, of course, why the US has launched the proxy war in uh, in Ukraine. If, if I could draw attention to some things, if you don't mind me advertising an article of my own, if you, you can find Lee on Monthly Review Online by me, an article on what is leading to the US's increase in military aggression. It's because of its economic weakness. Uh, there's also an excellent article by John Bellamy Foster, which is on monthly review in the in the paper version as well as online, which is showing what was really behind the U.S. attacks on 
uh, on the on Russia in in the Ukraine, the preparations proxy war. And there's a very good article which has originally appeared in Chinese, and but is published today on Monthly Review Online, called "Who Is Leading the U.S. to War," which shows that what the U.S. is really considering is turning the Cold War into a hot war. And I, I think that the outcome of the war in Ukraine will have significant effect on this. If the United States is successful in its uh, proxy war in the Ukraine, that is of weakening Russia or uh, regime change or whatever it defines as victory, then the United States will become still more aggressive against uh, China. If, on the other hand, it doesn't work out so well, in the Ukraine, then it will become more cautious because the United States deliberately crossed the red lines of Russia. It knew that the attempt to bring NATO, uh, Ukraine into NATO was intolerable to Russia. I mean, the United States was prepared to launch world nuclear war in 1962 to be to prevent uh, missiles being in Cuba, Soviet missiles being in Cuba. And I would point out that the distance from the Ukraine to Moscow is only half the distance from uh, Washington, uh, from Havana to Washington. So the United States knew it was prepared to cross the red lines of a major power. Previously, the United States had attacked only developing countries, Iraq, Libya, Syria. This was a new escalation. It knew what it was doing and was prepared to take the risk of crossing the, the red lines of a major nuclear armed uh, power. This is a qualitative escalation. And therefore, this is the real risk. It's not that there's no possibility of the United States defeating China in peaceful economic competition. The great danger is therefore that the United States will decide to launch uh, military means, warfare, uh, in order to try to prevent the, the rise of China. And this is a very serious threat to humanity at the present time. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's it's extremely dangerous, especially with the possibility of a nuclear exchange. And, uh, you know, people in Washington are very extreme ideolo ideologically. And outside of the, the bubble of Western media, I think most people in the world recognize how extreme US politicians are and they're always pushing for war as a solution to all problems. Um, I, I wanna ask you a final conclusion, a cl concluding question about your work um, with uh, Ken Livingston in, in London and also at Jeremy Corbyn. But before that, I do wanna thank all the commenters and especially the super chat I want to thank um, Blackjack Pinoco. Thank you so much for the donation. It means a lot. And there was, a, there was an interesting question here from another um, super chat. And this is for you, John. And just briefly, someone asked about the, I don't know if you know anything about the, um, China, is, China has been investigating the former head of monetary policy at the central bank. His name is Sun Guofeng. I don't know if you know anything about this case. And it seems like it's part of the, the Xi administration's crackdown on corruption. I don't know anything about this particular case. There is a general crackdown on corruption, which is very popular, carried out by the Xi Jinping, but I don't know about this particular case. Yeah, that was a question from Gabri Kwan. Sorry about that. Uh, I wish we could provide more insight, but thank you for the super chat. Thank you for the donation. I, it, it means us a lot. So um, to, to conclude here, John, let, let's brief, briefly talk about your time. You were director of economic policy for Ken Livingstone when he was mayor of London. I, don't, I wonder if you can reflect on your time and also what has happened to the Labour Party 
not only with Tony Blair, but also with the sabotage of Jeremy Corbyn. And Ken Livingston was suspended from the Labor Party for correctly talking about the history of uh, Zionist groups that and apartheid Israel collaborating with the far right and with fascist movements. And, and also, by the way, we now know that that apartheid Israel has been supporting neo-Nazis in Ukraine, sending weapons to the Azov Battalion. So that was yet another example of Ken Livingston being proven uh, correct in what he said. But I'm, I'm wondering if you could just reflect on what has happened to the British Labour Party and what your what your experience was like working with Livingstone. Well, I was I was extremely proud proud of what Ken achieved. I worked uh, with Ken. I mean, I mean, you know, not merely as a friend, but you know, as a, somebody paid me money. Let's put it that way. First as a as an advisor, and then as director of economic policy for um, twenty one years. Uh, Ken had a was a remarkable person. Had a remarkable record. He developed both very good economic policies for London, things which helped ordinary people greatly developing the fair what the um fares fair reduction of transport systems uh development of free travel for uh younger people development of free travel for older people he delivered greatly uh for the population he particularly delivered in the struggle against uh racism uh the the the, the activities that were undertaken by uh the uh, the greater london authority and the, the greater london council as it initially was and then the greater london authority were incredibly popular that's why thatcher removed from from office the first time he supported he got the first um civil rights to be for for same-sex people before he because he couldn't introduce a law uh to allow uh same-sex marriage but there was the introduction of what was civil partnership um, that was uh, that was done in London, um, and he, for example, the accusations about anti-Semitism ridiculous. He introduced the celebrations of Jewish festivals into the official calendars of the um, of the Greater London Council, and all, all this charge against him was a complete frame-up, in exactly the same way that the charges against um, Jeremy Corbyn were. So if we just go back to Ken, I'm very proud. We delivered a very great deal and he he delivered more. I, I'm very pleased I was advisor, but he was the person who was in the end took the decisions um, of what was done for um, for the people of London. If you if you look at the situation, what was done by uh, the Labour Party um, to, to Corbyn, again, it was a flat out uh, vilification and falsification of the him ridiculous charges such as that it was an anti-semite jeremy corbyn is the most determined anti-racist you had a situation whereby of course are, are there some a few are there some anti-semites in the labor party yes the idea that the labor party and they should be got rid of the idea that the labor party was institutionally anti-semitic or that corbyn was anti-semitic was absolute nonsense a absolute um frame up uh, and now what's happened is the, we are now have a very right wing, I'm afraid, uh, leadership of the Labour Party because the, this attack on Corbyn was not uh, successfully defeated, which has very terrible consequences. I mean, for example, if we take COVID at the present time, Britain has almost the worst record in the world from the point of deaths per capita, for example, for COVID deaths. It, it, until recently, it was the worst record in the world, but it's now been overtaken, unfortunately, by a few countries. The Labour Party put up no significant resistance to that. We've got a terrible reduction in living standards. 
And now we've got an extraordinary type of censorship. It's been declared that if you don't support NATO, you can't be a, a Labour MP. Uh, that's what Starmer has declared. Throughout its entire history, the Labour Party, which has been a broad church, has been uh, had people, uh, the Labour Party helped set up NATO. That's not something I support, but nevertheless, it did do it. And it's always had people who are against NATO. Now it's suddenly declared that if you don't support NATO, you can't be a, a member of uh, the, um, you can't be a member of the Parliamentary Labour Party. When people protested about the uh, positions which were taken by the British government over the position of the war in the Ukraine, they were told that if they didn't withdraw their um, names from opposition to this, um, they would be expelled from the Parliamentary Labour Party. It's very funny. So-called defenders of liberal democracy have um, conducted purges, uh, censorship, uh, etc. The, the very sad result is I would still like to get, uh, of course, the Tory party out of office. And I would urge people to vote for the Labour Party. But I'm afraid that the Labour Party will carry out um, very right wing policies in, in government and probably lead to it becoming um, extremely unpopular. That's because, of course, we're facing very difficult uh, economic conditions and very difficult conditions uh, with COVID. So that, I'm afraid, is the situation, as in many countries in the global north at the present time. The right wing is on on the offensive, as as we also know there's been the situation within the United States, whereas in the global south, uh, things are advancing. There's very exciting prospects in Latin America, whereby left wing government has been elected. There's a possibility that Lula will win the election in Brazil for president, which would change the world geopolitical situation. There's even a possibility or there is a possibility that the left will win the Colombian uh, presidential election. That would be an extraordinary change. Colombia has been for the dominated by the right, uh, even throughout the whole, you know, from 1960s, 70s, 80s, and during the so-called uh, pink tide. So we have really rather dramatic differences which are taking place in the world. You have in the global south, aided by the alliance with China, you have advances by the left. In the global north at the present time, we have uh, setbacks, but we have to fight, um, you know, socialists can't choose where they're born, they can't choose where they operate. They just have to do the best they can in whatever circumstances uh, they find themselves. If, and if the global south, one thing we've got to do in the global north is keep the, the global north countries from intervening against the countries in the global south. And if the global south countries advance, this will have a very beneficial effect inside of uh, the global north. So I, the way I would put it is, if you reflect, it's, it's, a bit, it's a bit like the difference between Russia and China. In Russia, I saw something terrible. And then in China, I saw something very good. Um, we had a good period in Britain uh, with Ken and with other people in the left wing of the Labour Party. We had a good situation with Corbyn. And now we're in a bad situation. So we just have to keep um, keep struggling, that's all. But it's always nice to know that people in other parts of the world are going forward. Yeah, well, I here at Multipolarista will be covering the elections in Colombia that are on May 29th. So definitely anyone who's interested in that, uh, follow my coverage here. And of course, the elections coming up in Brazil in October are extremely important. I've already been doing some coverage of that, including the announcement by Lula da Silva, the leading candidate, that if he wins the election again, and if the election is free and fair, according to all the polls, he's going to comfortably win the election, then he's promised to create a new pan-Latin American currency 
to to weaken their their dependency on the U.S. dollar. So there are a lot of exciting things happening, especially in the global south, and that's why I was very privileged to be joined by you, John Ross, to understand China's role in all of this, because of course it plays such a key role, a central role in pushing back against imperialism and neoliberalism. So again, I just want to remind people that I was speaking with John Ross. He is a senior fellow at the Chang Yang Institute for Financial Studies at Renmin University of China. And he is also the author of the book, China's Great Road. And I'm going to get up his Twitter account here. It's at John Ross 43. So anyone who's listening or watching, go over to Twitter and you can follow him. He's, he also mentioned he's very active on Weibo. So you can follow him there as well. And I just want to say to anyone watching on YouTube, please click the red subscribe button, uh, red subscribe button below, trying to build up this new channel. And uh, so if everyone watching this, if you can subscribe, please. And then, of course, if you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash multipolarista. I'm going to put a link below in the description of this video. And finally, I'll give you the last word, John. Is there anything you want to want to uh, pitch before we conclude here? No, just one thing is I've, I've lived in a lot of different countries, Russia, China, France, etc. One of the nicest things is anywhere you go in the world, you find people who are basically struggling with the same thing as you do, you never had any contact with before, and you find they've got basically the same beliefs and they're fighting for the same thing as you are. So it's great and it's very good to be able to communicate them over shows like yours and to be in more touch with them over the internet and other things. It's great personal experience, but it's also a very good interaction with other types because it means it's part of a whole socialist movement globally, which you can feel. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's that solidarity and kind of international brotherhood and sisterhood. So thank you, John. It was a pleasure. And thank you to everyone who commented. Thank you to all of the super chats, to Truth Seeker, to Blackjack Pinoco. I really appreciate the support. This is, I have no, uh, you know, major financial backers. This is completely independent and I will be back next week with more coverage. I'm going to be covering the U S sending hundreds of troops to Somalia. I'm going to be covering the election in Colombia. I'm going to be covering a, um, people's tribunal that is going on right now over the massacre of the, uh, revolutionaries in Sri Lanka and other, so other stories. So definitely keep track of this channel and I'll be back next week. Thanks to everyone. I'll see you all next time.